This is Talking Gut with clinical psychologist Dr Jim Kantadakis, a show dedicated to exploring the gut, the brain and related systems. Welcome to another episode of Talking Gut. In today's episode, not only did I have the privileged opportunity to interview Dr Coakley, but was lucky enough to spend time with her in person at Boston Children's Hospital in May last year, 2019. I just want to give a little bit of a background about Dr. Coakley. So Dr. Rachel Coakley is PhD, is also the Director of Clinical Innovation and Outreach in Pain Medicine in the Department of Anesthesia, Critical Care and Pain Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. She's also Assistant Professor at Harvard Medical School. So Dr. Coakley specializes in teaching children, including adolescents and parents, effective strategies to cope with pediatric chronic pain and pain-related stress using relaxation, Mindfulness and Cognitive Behavioural Skills, so CBT. She has published numerous articles and chapters on paediatric pain management and related topics and has presented at national and international conferences. Dr. Coakley founded the Comfortability in 2011 and directs the implementation at Boston Children's Hospital, which is where I visited. Since its implementation, the program reach has grown to not only other states in the U.S., but also other countries, including Australia, which is really awesome. For her work with the Comfortability Program, she was granted the 2016 David Wiener Award for Innovation in Child Health. Dr. Cloakley has also published a book titled When Your Child Hurts, Effective Strategies to Increase Comfort, Reduce Stress and Break the Cycle of Chronic Pain. Highly recommend this book and we'll talk about it in a bit more detail in the interview. What is the Comfortability Program? The Comfortability Program is a fun and innovative one-day program to help adolescents and their parents or caregivers learn how to better manage chronic pain. The program teaches how pain functions in the body and introduces cognitive behavioral and biobehavioral pain management strategies. The Comfortability emphasizes the mind-body connection and offers non-invasive and non-pharmaceutical strategies for improved pain management. I really hope you enjoy my interview with Dr. Rachel Coakley. Dr. Coakley, welcome to the Talking Gut podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Very excited to to uh, to be here with you today for the interview, but also um, for spending the whole day yesterday with you and your team at the Comfort Ability. Um, program that you have created and run, um, which we'll talk about um, in more detail as we go along. Um, I sort of like to start these sort of interviews, I guess, by just finding a little bit of background um, mm-hmm. with the person I'm interviewing in terms of how they, where, where this all began, began for them in terms of the journey to where they were in terms of the area that they're specializing in. Um, you know, what were the influences to sort of, to get you to where you are? today? Um, Good question. It's kind of uh, how I got into the chronic pain world was a little bit of happenstance. You know, I was interested in psychology, took some really fascinating classes in college, um, worked at Mass General as a research assistant for a few years, um, and it really sparked my interest to go to uh, graduate school and look at uh, psychology from a chronic illness perspective. 
And in pediatric psychology, that was initially my focus. I worked with kids who had spina bifida, um, and that was really sort of where most of my chronic illness work came in. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't until I got to my internship that uh, when I was working in oncology um, and with many kids who were having persistent pain as part of their cancer-related treatment, um, and they just weren't being offered anything from the mind-body perspective. And to me, it just seemed like there was so much to offer these kids. And it was in a hospital in Chicago, and they didn't have any psychology support really on a regular basis. Um, So... um, I sort of wedged myself in there and created this opportunity to start to deliver these interventions. Um, and I also started to train parents how to do this with their kids as well. A lot of guided imagery and deep breathing work um, and pretty quickly learned that parents were so hungry for this information. And so that became a real interest of mine as well. Okay. So that's, uh, your, the, the inclusion of, of parents, I guess, into treatment began quite a while. Yes, exactly. Okay. In terms of here at Boston Children's Hospital, which is a highly regarded hospital, um, a huge hospital, what is your role here? Well, I guess your position and your role in terms of, I mean, you've you've got your hands in so many different things. Mm-hmm. What is it that you do here specifically, if people are sort of wondering what it is that you do here? So I have a clinical and a research position, and I also do some teaching as well. So I'm in the Department of Anesthesiology, and I work clinically in the multidisciplinary pain treatment service. Mm -hmm. Um, So I work along with a physician and often a physical therapist, um, seeing new patients, kids who have persistent pain. Um, And we do an evaluation with all three of our providers, and then we provide joint feedback to the family. And we really try to scaffold a plan to get families back on track. Um, The other thing that I do is see kids and parents uh, on an outpatient basis. So I have a caseload of outpatients that I see regularly. Um, And in addition to that, I have some research and teaching that I do as well. Okay. So so the treatment's based on, in terms of multidisciplinary team, you're treating all pain? All pain. So from all conditions, including perhaps cancer, or is that another area? We don't see too much cancer-related pain uh, here. Um, there's just, we have separate departments that work with that, yep. but but really kids with any kind of persistent pain, headache, abdominal pain, musculoskeletal pain, nerve pain, um, post-viral pain, post-injury pain, post-surgical pain. Um, if you've got pain that's been persistent, lots of kids will get referred to our service. Yep. There's, there's a bit of yeah. misunderstanding. I, I think there's a bit of misunderstanding, and I know that part of your program and your book, which we'll talk about, um, in terms of pain, just in general, in terms of pain, um, can we just, just do like a little, a little sort of summary, I guess, um, of pain, mm-hmm. maybe acute versus chronic. Mm-hmm. Sure, of course. Yeah, it's, it's confusing for a lot of people. By definition, acute pain is any sort of pain that you would feel in the moment, right? So you burn your hand, you step on a tack, break a leg. That's acute pain. And the way the pain system is supposed to work is that you experience pain, you feel the sensation of pain uh, when your body is hurt, um, and you take action to protect it or to help it heal. And once the body has healed, those pain signals and sensations go away. Mm-hmm. That's how it's supposed to work. Chronic pain, by definition, is any pain that's persisted for three months or more. Um, and so it's the same 
protective alarm system. It's the same thing that's happening, except in many cases, whatever got that process started, whatever the injury or illness was that got that process going, it's now gone. And it's just these alarm systems that continue to ring. And so often we say it hurts, but it's not harmful. Mm. But it's it's really tricky because the body perceives the pain sensation in the same way it would if it was an acute pain. And and sometimes people feel chronic pain even more uh, severely than they would feel even an acute pain. Are we, I, I, I know that we are aware, but in terms of there are certain factors that, that I guess make that chronic pain worse. Mm-hmm. What would be some, I know that this is also part of your program, so I'm sort of sort of leading towards that, what are some of the things that perhaps will make that chronic pain experience worse or, or, or prolong it or lead to more suffering? That's a great question. And it's um, really, like you were saying, and we'll talk about the program in a few minutes, but it's one of the things that makes the treatment of chronic pain so challenging because um, some of the things that end up making chronic pain persist um, are not at all what you would first think about. So for example, when you hurt, uh, you often think, well, I should rest until I feel better. Um, but in the case of chronic pain, when you rest too much, you actually can get deconditioned and it actually can cause the body to be more sensitive to the pain itself. So resting often isn't the answer. Um, the other thing that sometimes happens with chronic pain that makes it worse is that you think about it a lot. You put a lot of your attention towards the pain, and it turns out that the more you think about pain or focus on pain, the more you feel pain. It amplifies the sensation of pain. Um, so we tell people, try not to think about it. Don't check in about the pain. Don't focus on the pain. That's really hard to do if you don't have the tools mm -hmm. to know how to do that. Mm -hmm. And there's also, I mean, Sleep also plays a factor in this too. Oh my gosh, it? absolutely. Yeah. Uh, for many kids with persistent pain, they don't sleep well. And, you know, the, in research, they really try to untangle does not sleeping well cause pain? Or does pain cause people not to sleep well? It's kind of a chicken or an egg, mm. right? But it turns out that not sleeping well is the bigger risk factor for pain than pain is for not sleeping well. Does that yes, make sense, right? Sense, yes. And 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 that matters because to some extent, if we can help kids to regulate their sleep, improve the quality and quantity of their sleep, we can start to reset some of that pain sensitivity, um, and that really helps in their recovery. So sleep is a really big factor. Great. In terms of and sleep, so important to so many things, and I think you know sleep. We don't sleep enough in general. I think sleep's one of those things that's declined as as oh my gosh for sure society grows and maybe capitalism <laughs> and then phones yep right. expectations and so forth competition um, I want to sort of lead that towards talking about uh, the comfortability um, which I've had the privilege of sitting in um, with yesterday I just absolutely amazing. I got so much out of it. It was so great to see Thank you. the transformation um, in, in certainly in terms of the parents. Um, and I'm sure it's in the kids as well. But where did, where did this all begin? Where did the comfortability, where did it all start from? So the comfortability, which is sort of this one day compact um, intervention for kids with persistent pain and their parents, um, 
came from. I'll, I'll give you. The, I'll give you the backstory. Um, when I first started at our pain treatment service, I actually had been working in our on our consultation service on the inpatient side at the hospital when a job opened up in our pain service. And they said, we've got such a, a long wait list of kids and parents that need services. And we've just opened up a new place for a psychologist. And one of my colleagues that was working here said, please come over to the pain service side, work, work with us here. So I did, and then I took a look at the wait list, and it, it was six or eight months long. There were so many families, and I said, my gosh, even if I take a full caseload, I, I'm not gonna touch this. There are kids that are gonna wait months and months and months for services. Um, and, and that was, I was like, we need to do better. There needs to be a better way to roll this information out. And it was that combined with my pretty early experience of feeling like, it kind of didn't matter if I was working with a kid that had headache pain or knee pain or abdominal pain. The way I started my treatment was really quite similar. And and what that involved was some basic psychoeducation Mm -hmm. about cognitive behavioral therapy, which is our gold standard kind of psychotherapy approach for Mm -hmm. the treatment of pain. And some basic neuroscience education about how pain functions in the body and how these brain-based strategies can be so effective in helping to modulate pain. Um, Some concrete uh, skills and tools from the cognitive behavioral therapy realm, so Mm. breathing techniques, relaxation techniques, things like that. and then some parent training. And and that's kind of how I was starting all of my individual outpatient therapy and really was like, we can do this in a group setting. Like, And there could be, in addition to the skills and the information we're rolling out, we can fold in some really much needed social support. Um, and so that was really sort of the impetus for starting to figure out the logistics of how we might uh, execute a program like that. And it's been around since 2011? Yes. Okay. And since then, has it has it changed much or has it been the sort of, I'm assuming it's evolved? And, it's and, evolved. Yep. It's definitely evolved. Um, and I would say that the first couple of years that we were, maybe the first three years we were running the program, um, it was a real iterative process. In other words, we got a lot of feedback from the kids and the parents and we modified and we took that feedback to heart and said, well, this part's a little bit boring. So we said, okay, we need to do something to make this more interactive and we want some more video-based content. You know, it can't just be didactics. And so we really took this feedback to heart and we kept modifying and changing the program and evaluating it based on the feedback we were getting. Um, For about the last four or five years, it's been pretty consistent, although we continue to add new components to the program to keep it as current uh, as possible. But, But our real goal was to figure out how do we engage families in the psychology of pain management, make it such that they understand what we're talking about, and we'll go on to seek additional resource and support if needed um, to help them on their journey in recovery. What, I mean, there's a lot of pain programs out there. Mm. Um, I, I honestly don't know how many, but I'm assuming it's quite a lot, some more successful than others. What is is comfortability, I've, I've found it to be unique, uh, I guess, but that's, I mean, I don't know, is there anything, is it unique to a lot of the other treatments out there, and I guess what makes it unique? Um, as far as I know, it's pretty unique. Mm-hmm. I don't know anybody else that's uh, disseminating. So I, I think one of the things that has made this program unique is that we not only devised this group treatment, but from the ground up, I really designed it with 
the thought, why are all of us trying to create intervention uh, for kids with pain? Why don't we share our work? Um, and knowing that that translational science piece of it has been so terribly slow, um, which is a huge disservice to the kids that are struggling with pain and their parents. Um, so I really wanted to think about how do we package this? How do we help to consider in the design of the intervention, how does it transfer? How do we train? How do we share? Um, because that's that's a very big um, uh, interest of mine. Um, so I don't know anybody else that's, that's done it with that mindset. Um, that being said, this isn't the only way to roll out this kind of important education and skills-based training. There are some uh, internet-based kinds of interventions that are mm -hmm. being developed, mm -hmm. um, and there's a great value in those as well. Um, so, so I think that there's lots of ways that we can start to do this, but I, I think at this point, the comfortability is the biggest intervention of its kind that's doing this work. Is the, I mean, again, and, and, and if from a GI uh, psychology perspective, there, there is a study that comes to mind, I can't remember who it was from, um, where they, they included the parents mm. uh, as part of the treatment for the CBT. Um, and again, the, the treatment was effective in reducing the symptoms as well as the psychological distress mm -hmm. associated with it. I think it might have been for functional abdominal pain. I can't remember if it was for that or for IBS. Um, in terms of the parent, I mean, maybe we should just talk about what what it involves like i mean i've got a, a picture in my head because i saw it firsthand but yeah. perhaps people that might not and you've got we'll talk a bit more about the website in terms of whether people can get information about sure. the program what does it involve like what what can someone what can a family i guess expect right that's a great question um so, so here's what it involves. Let me describe the intervention first yep. for a minute, and mm. then I'll tell you sort of like what our research has found in terms yep. of what the expectations might be. Great. Um, because I, I, you know, I try to be really thoughtful about helping parents and kids to understand what, what they can expect. Um, so the intervention is this. We, we bring together a group of about 10 to 12 families at a time. The kids are aged 10 to 17, so mm -hmm. a wide age range. Mm -hmm. They can have any kind of ongoing pain problem. Mm -hmm. Like I said, lots of different pain problems together because it matters less where you hurt. It matters more about how the pain interferes with your life. Mm -hmm. um, and we bring together their parents and we encourage two parents to come uh, if it's a two-parent family. Uh, we run the program on a weekend so we make it as accessible as possible. We try mm -hmm. to break down those barriers of school and work and um, we bring them all together. We start the day with the kids and parents together, just give them a brief overview. But pretty quickly we split them up. And in the parent program, we do six hours of parent training in this one-day intervention. The first part of the program, the morning, is really spent building the foundation around pain management. Um, like I was mentioning before, the cognitive behavioral therapy, what is it? Why does it work? Why, do, why should we care about this? Um, and the neuroscience education about how pain functions in the body. Mm -hmm. um, we also talk a little bit about pain in the context of development. Um, so they can understand the the impact that their child having pain has on, on the development piece of things. Um, and then we kind of launch into parent skills training. Yeah, so yeah, we wanna teach parents, how do you respond to your child's pain symptoms? Okay, like I said, we, we, we tell parents, don't ask about the child's pain, try not to talk about the pain. And they're kind of like, 
what? Like, how do we not talk about pain? This is the biggest thing that's going on in our lives right now. So you have to teach them. How do you be empathic? How do you respond in a way that lets your child know that you care without having to check in about the symptoms over and over again throughout the day? Because the children get sick of that as well. I mean, oh, gosh, of course. How are you feeling? Are you in pain? You know, right. and if, if they're not getting any solution from it, from a, from a child's perspective, they're like, I'm just over it, you know, enough. I'm fine, you know, totally. or I'm still in pain, you know, just leave me alone. Exactly, exactly. The kids don't like it, but the parents feel like if they don't ask, then they're missing out on what's going on, right? Well, they feel like, I guess the parents feel like they're doing something as well yeah, as opposed good point. to feeling completely helpless. Right, right. And, and and a big piece, what I hear a lot from parents is, I don't want my child to think I don't care. Yeah, That's a big thing. If I don't yep. ask, how do they know that I'm thinking about them, worrying about them, caring about what's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, but we say checking in about the pain, not helpful. And, and, and if by chance your child was not thinking about that pain in that moment, asking them about it is um, going to remind them of it. So um, we ask them not to do that. So we have to teach them. We teach them a skill called reflective listening, which is a skill that teaches parents how to be empathic, how to be in that moment and um, connecting to their child, but also um, not dwelling on it and, and really moving towards a more problem solving kind of approach. And that video, I mean, on the website, there are some little videos on yes, the website. Yes, they're that, freely that, available. That demonstrated some really good ones in there, actually. Um, even if even if there is, if you don't have a child that has pain, I think that reflective uh, listening <laughs> it's, it's worthwhile. It certainly is. Um, oh. if you've got young teenagers uh, would be fantastic to watch. Right. Well, actually, because of course that's a skill that just parents should know. Yeah. It doesn't even apply necessarily no. to pain. No, absolutely. It's just a good parenting. I'm going to go tool. back and watch it again, even I'm a psych. Right. I think. <laughs> Just remembering those 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 key, uh, key um, things. So there's that piece of it, and then we really want to teach parents about the return to function. That's the other big piece of it, because yeah. um, another counterintuitive part of this uh, pain management piece is that we ask kids to get back to function before they feel better. And in fact, getting them back to their function is part of how we reset those pain cycles, the pain alarms that are going off in their body. So, Which is really interesting, isn't it? Because yeah. I guess the, the general person would think in order to get back to functioning, I've got to get rid of the pain first. Totally, of course. And, and we're wired that way. That's yep. the protective nature yep. of pain. But once doctors have said, you're okay, Okay, you know, you're not going to harm yourself by getting back to school or going back to some of your activities, then that green light means you've got to start moving again. And by moving, your body relearns how to do that uh, without the fear of pain, without those pain signals. So getting back into those routines is paramount to the recovery for chronic pain. So we want to teach parents, you can't just throw kids back, right? You can't just say, well, okay, doctor says you're fine. Back to school you go. You know, if they haven't been in school, you have to teach parents how to break that down for them in a stepwise fashion. I call it scaffolding. Yeah. Where you bit by bit build them back to their function. And in that process, they gain confidence in their ability to function. That's a big piece of this. That would be um, that would be really challenging, wouldn't it? Because, um, you know, you're seeing your child suffer, mm-hmm. saying that they can't go to school. Um, and yet it's the most important, and it's something that I talk about with, with a lot of my um, patients um, and the parents that, you know, it, it kind of is that, I don't know, I don't know if I really like the, the term tough love. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's about, you know, you're really, the love is really helping them to get 
better and you have to manage your own stress and anxiety and feelings of guilt. Yes, um, of course. With having to, to send your child off to school when, you know, they are in pain or they are really anxious about, you know, the pain or whatnot. Right. So, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I think the scaffolding procedure where we teach parents how do you break this down into small steps, it's as much for parents as it is for kids. Mm. In other words, I do think that parents can't, and I don't, I agree with you, I don't love the um, term tough love, but parents can't encourage and hold their child accountable for making progress towards their goals if they themselves don't have confidence that their child can succeed. And so if we scale these goals correctly, if we scale these steps in a way that both kids and parents are like, it's going to be hard, but that's doable, then we say, then you can have more confidence in terms of holding with that accountability and getting your kids back on track. And that was, I saw the I saw the transition um, myself, my own eyes, in terms of when it started, started the day with the parents mm. um, and that sense of, I guess, relief that they had some strategies and and, and each, and yeah. the, the power of the group, I noticed yeah. as well, Rachel, was they were sharing with each oh other my gosh, at certain it's points so and getting so much value from everyone's experience, but also what was, I noticed a couple of them were sort of helping each other of out. Of course they were, um, of course. Was, Yeah, no, I think that's one of the most beautiful things that happens. And that's why I do think that the in-person group setting um, is is so powerful and helpful for these families. I I hear all the time from kids and parents that they feel really alone in, in their suffering. They feel like friends don't get it family doesn't get it sometimes they feel like their their medical providers don't really get it and so just the power of sitting in a room with people who get it mm. is is really powerful and i do i think you're right too i appreciate your observation because what i see you probably noticed in the morning there's tears when parents are telling their stories and there's this sense of helplessness i don't know what to do and my child is suffering and and it kills me it's it's really uncomfortable and i don't know what to do to help um and by the end of the day there's a little bit of a brighter tone they're sort of like okay i've got something i'm going home with i know a little bit of the direction we're heading in and not that a day program cures the problem i mean nobody would suggest that but it does offer some hopefulness and some skills and strategies to get people moving in that right direction yeah one thing i noticed as well and um was the concern that parents have around schooling um that took it was the questions that were asked and you know i mean it was such a it's a different system to what we have in australia so i'm sure um, I, I heard yesterday, and even today at, at the at the GI department uh, at Boston, uh, a lot of reference to the five hundred four, <laughs> and I, mean, I didn't get a chance to ask Dr. Hale, Amy today, um, and the IAP and um, all these sort of uh, what 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 is the five hundred four? Yeah, so it's funny that you say. I mean, it, it's a very confusing world here with all of these school plans. Yeah, the five hundred four, and it's just sort of called that. It's the it's the actual code from the Americans with Disabilities Act. So it's code 504 in this act uh-huh. that says that children with medical or psychological uh, diagnoses are entitled to accommodation at school. And that's uh-huh. what the code, that's the stipulation. Yep. What's included in the 504 
is different for every child and it's up for discussion and negotiation with the school. And so the process for that is that often psychologists or medical providers will make recommendations. And we think this child would benefit from you know, extra time on assignments or extra time to transition between classes or uh, a, a later date, a later start to the school day. And then the school and the parent, it's up to them to implement that plan. And there can be some negotiation on that front as well. Um, an IEP, which stands for an Individualized Education Plan, um, is a different... Oh, is it IEP? I thought it was I-E-I-A-P. No, okay. it's IEP. Right. Okay. Um, and uh, it's an Individualized Education Plan. And, and, and that really has to do more with learning disabilities as well. And so less about the psychological, medical, although those can be incorporated. It gets, there's, you know, if you had Venn diagrams, there would be some overlap. Um, and sometimes health plans or medical psychological accommodations can be incorporated into IEPs, um, but they're much more involved and much they take much longer to put into place. Um, so 504 plans should be pretty straightforward, pretty quick and easy, and accessible to most kids with chronic pain um, that are in our public school systems. Yep. Schools are schools. I guess they're all based on education, right? What, I mean, I guess what piece of advice uh, would you give parents that might be listening to this interview? Um, what, what I mean, I guess what I'm referring to are having key go-to people, I think, that mm -hmm. were discussed in, in, in the group to, to, to have some of those supports. Mm -hmm. for, for on the school front, like who, yeah. who supports? Um, yes. I, advice that I always give to parents is find somebody at the school who can be your ally. There's got to be somebody. And sometimes you just, sometimes it's quite nuanced, like you're sitting in a school meeting or you're introduced with somebody and you just get that vibe that they really understand mm -hmm. or want to help. Uh, make that person your point person. And it doesn't matter usually so much if it's a guidance counselor or a nurse or a child's favorite teacher or a vice principal or principal, but make sure that there's somebody at the school that can help you to navigate this process a little bit and be an ally with you in it. Um, it depends school to school how they set these up. There's so yep. much variability that um, it's really hard to make global generalizations, but I do think putting things in writing is really important too. So if you want to request a 504, that request should be dated and it should go in writing to the school um, so that they have record of it being there. Um, and then I think parents do have to be proactive in terms of setting up a meeting, deciding what's going to be our first line kind of intervention there, and importantly, following up and evaluating what's working, what's not working and being open to the idea that those plans sometimes need to be tweaked. Yeah, because the education, they have, they have to be on board really, don't of they? Of course. There's another component to the group that I thought was amazing um, was, in terms of still talking about the adult component um, or the parental component, um, was the past, um, I can't remember his, his name now, was it Mike? Oh, yes, the parent speaker. The parent speaker, thank you. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? Because I, I, that was something that I thought was quite interesting. And again, mm. um, observing the, you know, everyone in the group and, and, you know, he was amazing in the sense that I'll let you actually talk about that first before I yeah. start 
making my observations. Um, he was amazing. I agree. Um, so the parent, so so in our parent program and in our teen program, part of the day for forty five minutes in our day, we invite a guest speaker, and the, and the guest speaker is a past parent and past kid teen mm -hmm. who have done the program and are kind of on the other side at this point you know the kids functioning really well fully functional really um, and the parent you know has really seen their child come through to the other side of this process um, this is one of those things that came about from the early years when I was developing this program and really looking to parents for feedback. And I said, you know what, what would make this a stronger program? And they said, gosh, we'd really like to hear from somebody who like this mythical person who's on the other side, you know, like we need that hope. We need that to hear from somebody who's walked the walk um, that can say, hey, yeah, that these things work and this gets better. Um, and so we started to invite some past patients back to talk to these parents and kids who are really at the beginning of their journey and just feeling so depleted, so hopeless that this was not going to improve and maybe even doubtful that there was a, a verifiable role for psychology in their recovery from pain. Um, and it really lent so much to the day because yeah. just seeing somebody in the flesh sitting there that has has said, hey, yeah, these things work. And I didn't believe it. And when I sat on the other side of the table, I was doubtful. I wasn't sure that this was going to be my kid or that we would be so lucky as to get to the other side. And, you know, then for him to be able to say, I, I sat there, I remember being doubtful and I'm here to tell you yeah, this was that. really powerful and it worked. Um, or, or the, you know, not, not that the day worked, but that the constellation of skills and strategies, you know, were, were really, um, an asset and a turning point for their family. Um, we also now, uh, last year developed a parent and a teen advisory board to the comfortability program. And they've been wonderful because together as sort of a, a functioning body, they've said, we can think of other resources that would be helpful. So by way of example, our teen advisory board just came up with this fantastic um, handout. They said, you know, talking to friends about pain was one of the things that we struggled with. We remember yep. uh, when we were, when we had pain, we really struggled with that. And they said, you know, sometimes people said, well, just explain it in your in your best words to your friends. You know, they'll understand. And they said that just felt too overwhelming. And so what they put together was literally like when your friend asks you this, here are yeah. five things you can say yeah. in response to that. Um, and they said, you just need the words like like and, I, and they put that together all on their own. And the teens that have received that have found it to be so helpful. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that because I could I could adapt that to some of the anxieties that people have about going out to dinner and of course free. so I was like I they definitely need have the to do words that. And, absolutely right 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 um, and our parent advisory board put together this fantastic document like like what we know now that we wish we knew mm -hmm. when we were going through and they came up with school tips and medical tips and psychology tips um, and it was really it was really helpful I mean it's it was great one of my favorite tips that they came up with about psychology. They said, you know, we had no idea that that the psychologist kind of quarterbacks the recovery process. You know, not only do they teach these important cognitive behavioral skills and therapies, but all along the way, they're helping to evaluate, like, what are the barriers? What's working? What's not working? Where are we making progress? Where do we need to double down? Um, and, and just helping to sort of chart that path forward. 
The other thing that um, I really liked about the the, uh, the guest um, that came in the past attendee was that he, he he told his story, and then he just sat back and said, "Ask me any question you want." Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was, and again, a lot of that was around. I think around the schooling, a lot of the questions came out as well. But um, just being able to answer all his questions, and not, you know, he admitted to not not being perfect, and mm-hmm. I think that was reassuring um, for a lot of the other parents that were in the group as well. Oh my gosh, yeah. This is not. I mean, first of all, of course, every child's different, yeah. um, and there is no perfect way to get through this. You know, yeah. it's it's you do the best you can. You learn some skills and strategies, and you keep you know moving forward bit by bit. Um, but you know, I, I think one of the things that makes that parent guest speaker component so important is that they're not a trained entity of our program. Mm-hmm. They are there just to be a sounding board and to have some free discussion. And, you know, as you mentioned, there was a lot of crosstalk in the room around that too, where parents were learning from each other and learning from our guest speaker. Um, but, um, but I think that sort of openness is a really important piece of this, that honesty and um, authentic- authenticity. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I don't want to forget, because this was something else that he said that I thought would, would be and would be really valuable was where he mentioned that, you know, he had read your book, which we'll talk about. <laughs> um, and he not only read your book, he bought a few copies <laughs> and he gave them out to other important individuals or whether they were medical doctors as well as I, the, like he, to a number of people. He said, he he said five people. <laughs> Um, it was a good pitch. Um, it, it was a good pitch. It was, it's always a little embarrassing, but it was it was wonderful. It was so it was very kind. But of the, but it just sort of highlighted again that that there's a lot of people that don't really understand. Oh my gosh! And if if they understood, then the recovery, I guess, um, for these for these individuals, teens, and I guess even adults, uh, would be, you know, the recovery would be so much quicker and and I guess less suffering. I know that would be the goal. I mean, I really do think that we still face this massive problem where there's just a lack of understanding about what chronic pain is and what the recovery can look like. Um, and so he did. He bought, I think, you know, he read my book and it really, um, he really connected with the content. And the book provides a lot of education. The first sort of third of the book is really just explaining what is chronic pain and what chronic mm. pain is not. Mm. It's not a mental health problem. It's, no, you know, right. it's, um, it's, it's real. It's valid. We, we actually know a lot about how to treat it. It's not a garbage bag diagnosis kind of thing. Like we, we, un- we have a lot of understanding, a lot of research that informs the work that we do. Um, so it really breaks that down. And I think, for for him, you know, the reason he he gave it out to a lot of school personnel and That's I, right, school personnel. yeah, yeah, and I think it was sort of like, here, read this. We're not making this up. This is a thing, and um, it's poorly understood. Yes, but it's common problem, and you all should be educated about it because you're going to have other students in your school that are going to be struggling like this. Yes, um, I'm I'm certainly. I mean, uh, Dr. Hale is, is, is a huge fan of your work um, <laughs> and, uh, and of your book. And it was interesting. I was in clinic with her today. And um, as I said to you earlier, pre-recording, um, one of the uh, patient's parents had, had read your book. 
that as well. Awesome. So that was great. And she she was recommending it out to other people today as well, as as I will be when I return home. Thank you so much. Um, it's it's truly an amazing book. So we've covered the parents. What's going on for the young the young people, uh, the little people, the young people, not so little, um, yeah. the, the the teens and the and the kids that are going on in the other room, I guess. Mm-hmm. So. The kids program is quite different from the parent program. And, you know, you can't bring kids in and have a more discussion-based kind of learning environment. It has to be really hands-on to engage the kids. We, We still are combining the education about cognitive behavioral therapy. I think adolescents really need to know sort of what is this? Why are they recommending a psychologist as part of my care Mm -hmm. for what clearly seems like a physical problem? I mean, pain is a physical problem. So, you know, so many kids feel stigmatized, parents too sometimes, by that referral to a psychologist. So we really want to dispel sort of what is that myth? Um, We need to teach the kids too at a developmentally appropriate level how does pain work? What What's going on? What's that mind-body connection? Um, and how do we target that? What is, from a pain signal perspective, um, why does relaxation help? Um, we have to help them with that buy-in. There's a little bit of motivational interviewing so that we can help really to bring them on board and, and have them start to elicit their own motivation for wanting to feel better and thinking about what that is. Um, but the bulk of the day for the kids is in vivo practice and exposure to lots of different uh, tools and skills and strategies. So um, we have the kids spread out on yoga mats. Mm-hmm. We teach them diaphragmatic breathing. We teach uh, guided imagery exercise. And they you know, do things where they draw their pain before their exercise and they draw a picture of their pain after their exercise and talk about were they able to make any visualization kinds of changes and how they perceive their pain. Um, we um, do uh, a mindfulness eating exercise. We do aromatherapy. We do art therapy. Um, we do uh, we we allow them to experiment and try biofeedback, uh, which is a, which can be a helpful tool in learning pain management skills. So throughout the day, they're just getting an opportunity, and then woven throughout all of that is some education around anxiety and depression and the role that can play in pain, the importance of staying focused on goals and return to activity. Um, we talk about distractions, you know, all sorts of kinds of things that sort of sprinkled throughout the day as well. At the end of the day, you know, we sort of I tease that it's sort of like a buffet of pain coping strategies that we offer to them and give them a chance to try. Um, And then at the end of the day, they have an opportunity to create what's called my comfortability plan, which is a time when they start thinking about what was one of the favorite skills that I learned? What skill can I use when I go to sleep at night? What can I use if I'm in school and I start to hurt more? Um, How do I manage my stress best? What's one goal I'm going to start working towards this week? Um, So they really start to pull it together at the end of the day so that when they leave, they've got sort of a comprehensive plan that they can really start to implement the next day. And it's it's really important that for both the parents and the kids that they implement the plans and what they've learned pretty much quite quickly. I think that was something you That's about. always the goal. I yeah. mean, I, I think if you, you know, with anything, right, if you learn it and then toss it to the side and you don't use it, it's of no value. Mm-hmm. So what I say, my pitch to the kids and the parents at the end of the day is that you've got 48 hours, the clock starts now, you've got to go home, 
talk about how you're going to start to implement what's going to change and 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 get going with it. Like there's no time but the present to get started with these kinds of things. And then I really also try to make a plug for sticking with it because change doesn't happen overnight. Mm. It takes weeks. So you mentioned breathing. Now it was uh, a, a diaphragmatic breathing specifically. And the parents learned this as well. I did as, teach the parents, yeah. As, yeah. as well as the as the, as the kids, um, I'm I'm the biggest fan of the diaphragmatic breathing. I pretty much prescribe it for nearly all all my patients of that course. come in. Um, it also actually helps with bloating. Oh, interesting. Yes, I was gonna I was gonna throw that out to the parents. <laughs> uh, you, well, you certainly could have. I didn't actually know that. Yeah, yeah diaphragm uh, bloating is not necessarily always caused by gas. It can be caused by what we call abdominophrenic dysinergia. Mm. Um, and there are some papers on that in itself for that for belching for um, bowel emptying. It's just it is the breathing exercise of all breathing exercises. It is. It's that. amazing. <laughs> but why specifically? Anyway, get to the point, Jim. Why specifically? For pain, why is it? Why is the breathing? I mean, I remember what you said, but why is the breathing so important? I guess for for pain management. Well, I I think it's really the linchpin to sort of resetting that autonomic nervous system. Mm -hmm. And so, for so many of our kids with pain, their autonomic nervous system is just in overdrive. Um, and one because their pain, two because of all the pain related stress. So the not sleeping, the not going to school, the challenges with friends, and all of that. So I think that just giving them a grounding technique, just giving them an opportunity to start to unwind that nervous system activity, which I mean, diaphragmatic breathing is the gold standard for doing mm. that. Um, is a It's a very easy to learn, quick to implement, um, and hugely successful skill that yep. we can teach pretty quickly to kids. Um, so, I mean, for that reason, and it really doesn't matter what kind of pain you're having, it's going to have that calming effect. And there's an, is there an online component in terms of what happens once the treatment, the group, I guess, is over for, for the parents? What happens then? Yeah, so at this point... Um, we do offer online chats, and mm -hmm. so these are uh, um, text-based chats that happen through our website. They happen once a month, and we do them in the evenings. Um, and on the chat is a psychologist and a parent or peer mentor, mm -hmm. um, and we alternate. We, one month we'll do a parent chat, the next month we'll do a teen chat. Um, and that's an opportunity, one, for them to get some ongoing social support, but also to ask questions or just talk about other kinds of um, adaptive ways to manage pain. So we do offer those. We've got lots of resources on our website as well, mm -hmm. so for some continued learning. Yes, right. Um, yeah. But then one of the things that we try to do is just mm -hmm. arm parents with a lot of resources when they leave so that if they need additional information, they've got books or other websites or other leads to find psychologists to work with one-on-one -on -one to continue their learning and their and their treatment. Yeah, some really good books in there that I had a look at, actually. Oh, thank there you, was, yeah. Because uh, you also see quite a lot of, because I noticed that obviously there was a lot of GI or there's a few books on, on, on tummy pain. We do see a lot well. of GI you pain. A That's of about GI a third pain. of who comes to yeah, our group. Yeah, there's a few in the group that mm -hmm. I noticed that was great. Mm -hmm. In terms of comfortability, it's, I mean, for those fortunate enough to be here in Boston or, or nearby, it, it's once a month yes. that, you, that you host it. And but you've also now it's expanding. It's 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 going outside of Boston. Oh yes. Um, and it's also coming to Australia. 
which it is. is super exciting. Thank um, you. So whereabouts is it at the moment Where and where's it going? We are at 16 children's hospitals right now in the U.S. and Canada. Wow. Yeah, we've got uh, four in Canada right now. Um, we've got several other sites in the U.S. that are queued up to license it. And then in Canada, um, it Excited! I'm one of the partners of the Skip grant there with the Solutions for Kids in Pain, and so this is a national initiative to improve pain management services across Canada. Um, and our goal is to roll out 20 sites in four years there. So we're hoping to expand um, in a really wonderful, robust way through Canada. Um, and then, yes, I'll be coming this summer to South Adelaide uh, in a Harvard Australia fellowship wow. um, and doing some training there and starting the program in South Adelaide um, and um, at the Women and Children's Hospital there. Um, and then hopefully partnering with Sydney and some other places as well. Hopefully Melbourne. Hopefully and Melbourne. hopefully Melbourne. Hopefully Melbourne. That's, uh, yeah. I think it'll happen I'm, if it's coming across Adelaide. And, and then, of course, I mean, I want to do English and I, I want, I'm sorry, I want do French and Spanish translations. Uh, right that, now, actually, it's yeah. only in English, but um, we are hoping to translate. And then my my goal um, is, you know, through some additional program development work, to develop some virtual classrooms. So those will be places where patients that have done the sort of introductory workshop can log in and get additional learning um, in group formats there. Wow. Pretty big. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. So I mean, there's so much work that can be done in this yeah. space, right? It's yeah. just um, the need is so great, and we've got the understanding, we've got the knowledge. We just have to translate it. We just have to make it mobilized in a way that we can get it to kids and to parents. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's um, such a great initiative. It's a great program. Thank you. For and the website. So, what is the website? Just so people who are listening might want to go and check it out, because there's a there's a number of different valuable resources um, that they can benefits they can get as we talked about. What so yeah, is it? Absolutely, the website is just thecomfortability.com, mm -hmm. and um, on the website we've got. Uh, a blog that's written there for parents. So some different parenting articles about managing pain in school or talking with your family about pain. Um, there are guided exercises. So we've got recorded yes. um, mindfulness exercises as well as some basic relaxation like guided imagery, progressive muscle relaxation, breathing techniques. Um, and those are recorded. They can be played directly from the website um, you can also download them right onto your phone. Um, or maybe my favorite feature is that we have uh, posted the scripts of the exercises wow. so that parents or other psychologists can just easily print them and use them in practice or parents can read them to their kids. I mean, it truly is one of the loveliest ways that parents can support their kids in the management of their pain if they either engage in parallel in, with some of these exercises or learn to lead their kids through them. And and we do have some tips for parents about how to help your child with relaxation. In fact, um, one of the videos on the website demonstrates a parent helping a teen with some relaxation and even a teen who doesn't really buy into it. Okay. So it's that takes, would be really helpful. That would be really helpful. It starts with the teen like, yeah, I'm not sure. No, I don't think I want to do this. And, you know, really models how parents can encourage maybe a few minutes of trying and then grow it from there. Was it the same actor dad that was so patient in the reflective exercise? No. Okay. He did a remarkable job of staying calm. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Okay, so let's just say that um, someone can't 
uh, attend their comfortability or they're, they're getting, they're, they're on the website, they're getting value in it, but they want more. So mm-hmm. I guess I'm, I'm leading the segues towards now talking about your book, uh, When Your Child Hurts, Effective Strategies to Increase Comfort, Reduce Stress and Break the Cycle of Chronic Pain. I've read this book. It's a great book. Thank you so much. Um, there is so much information in this book. Um, there's a great deal of value and it really covers a lot of things that we've talked about today yes. and what's covered in the program, mm-hmm. but in a lot more detail. Right. Is that right? I, I, I would say so. Um, I, you know, I wanted a space to really, you know, a one day program is limited by how much you can really um share and deliver content wise. Um, but I wanted to really have a space where I could get all of my thoughts down about, you know, if, if we could, you know, this is all information that's so critical for parents to know in the recovery from pain. And you even sort of, and so this is a book that can be read from, uh, as I said to you yesterday, it's a book that can be read from start to finish. Yes. But it's also a book that you can just go to the relevant chapters and, and go back to and read the relevant chapters. Exactly. Exactly. And you also covered, um, you also covered the different types of treatments out there yes. as well um, in terms of some of the evidence-based and the not so evidence-based which can be confusing for parents oh my gosh right and Mm -hmm. um there's a lot of treatments out there that you know when parents don't feel like they've gotten the answers or the help that they need um for whatever reason then they might try something that you know i guess that in in the one side that might not do anything and not be harmful which is you know it's a waste of time and money and disappointing but Mm -hmm. you know sometimes can be harmful, which is the part that For I'm concerned sure. about more than anything else. And I've actually come across that. Um, I've, I've, I've had a patient who that sort of experience happened when they sought treatment overseas. And mm. let's just say they were very lucky in the end. So yeah. um, I don't think it's any of the things that we've, that was in your, that are the examples in your book, but why, why, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, why, why did you include that chapter? I think it's really important. I, you know, like you, I've seen parents that get so confused and mired down with what's the what what should I try? And you know, we're not we're not in the dark about what kinds of treatments and interventions are most effective. And so I really try to structure it with sort of what I think about as my first tier interventions, second tier, and then third tier or no, uh, you know, in terms of like what's a viable way to go here. Um, what I want parents to know is that if your child has persistent pain, the the trifecta of interventions that are most evidence-based are physical activity, whether that's structured physical therapy or a home-based exercise program, mm-hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy, or one of the offshoots of that. Yeah, um, act of mindfulness. Act, exactly, yep. exactly. Um, and, and working with a medical professional. And, and so medications can definitely have a role to play in this as well. Um, and I often use the analogy, I say, you know, if you've got chronic pain, you're like a tricycle with three flat tires. Yeah. And those are the kinds of interventions. One in each tire is how we get kids moving again. In addition to that, some kids find real benefit from other interventions that have a good or a growing evidence-based, like acupuncture or yoga. I mean, those things can be a really helpful adjunct to the other kinds of interventions that you're putting in place. Ultimately, we want kids to feel more comfortable, mm-hmm. um, and there are lots of a, a ways you can. There are lots of ways you can do that. Um, but like you said, there are some interventions out there 
And if you look on the internet, they're not hard to find mm -hmm. that really prey on patients' vulnerabilities, um, make false promises, seem too good to be true. Um, or sometimes maybe they just think like, well, it can't hurt, so I might as well try this. Um, but I really wanted to inform parents about what some of the risks are for interventions that we don't have a strong evidence base for. And that often it's not worth wasting the time, money, energy, and especially not if you're engaging in, if you're not engaging in sort of our gold standard treatments, basically. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought up the, the tricycle um, example, because I was going to ask, ask you the question about yeah. that, because I thought it was such a great uh, metaphor. In terms of, just out of curiosity, in terms of some of the treatments that you've talked about, and it's only because it's an area that um, I'm quite involved in GI psych, um, is hypnotherapy. Mm. Um, is where Where's your viewpoint on that? Because there is there is some evidence. I don't know if there's, I mean, in terms of from a GI gut-directed hypnotherapy, there's quite a bit of evidence. Yes. Um, and I'm, I'm aware that back home that there are a lot more anesthetists actually mm. doing some hypnotherapy yes. training as well. Where, is there anything like that? Is there any hypnotherapy? I know that um, Dr. Snyder, I think, does some in the GI department. Yes. Um, but is there any any hypnotherapy going on in the in the pain unit? Yes, yes, we we do some hypnotherapy. Um, there are various levels of training for it, and um, there are certifications and things like that as well. None of our psychologists here are you know fully certified um, hypnotherapists, but. Um, but we integrate some different kinds of self-hypnosis. All of the hypnosis we do is self-hypnosis yep. um, into some of the work we do. And I think it really varies. I think to some extent, if patients are really interested in it and they want to try it, um, it can be a really useful kind of intervention. Um, but it's not, you know, I say it's not always necessary to do if patients don't want to do it. Yep. Um, but we are using it for pain. And I think the evidence base for that is definitely growing. Good to hear. As a summary, as we're sort of winding up, and we sort of uh, the questions that I typically ask is what, you know, what, as a bit of a summary, what would be important for someone, for let's say for a parent um, that is listening to this recording and has a child that is, is suffering from pain, what are some of the key, perhaps a, a summary or a key takeaway points that they can take away, the important points, I guess, there's so much they can take away from this talk. Mm -hmm. Um, what what are the important parents, things for them to remember, perhaps? I think, you know, what I often start off saying to parents is that the our best psychological strategies, this housed in cognitive behavioral therapy, are effective for the treatment of pain, but that doesn't imply that pain is just a psychological problem. And I think if parents buy into that and they can understand where we're coming from in that perspective, um, then they can get their kids on board um, and they can start to think about how we shape this and that, that there's an active role in terms of how we move forward with that. I do also think that I hear from parents all the time, I can't find a cognitive behavioral therapist. Um, and it's true, there are not enough, really? especially in pediatrics. Oh yes, in pediatrics there are not enough cognitive behavioral therapists who really understand pain. Um, and so I like for them to know that um, the skill set that we use to manage pain is in many ways quite similar to the skill set that cognitive behavioral therapists use to manage anxiety because 
pain causes an activation of the nervous system mm -hmm. and we're trying to deactivate that. We're trying to dim the activity of the nervous system to help diminish pain signaling. And so um, I, I try to arm them with some opportunities to go find other providers that can that can do that kind of work. But, but making sure that that's an important and integrated part of their child's recovery um, is really important. Yep. Great. What about for, let's just say, the allied health professional um, other doctors and specialities. What 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 are some yeah. of the maybe maybe a bit trickier to answer? But no, I no? don't think so. Oh, no, okay, I okay, want great. to answer that. Oh, okay, great, um, great, great. I, I yeah, this is this is tricky because I think we're not doing an awesome. Oh, sorry. Um, I was just cleaning that came in. Yeah, I think we're not doing an awesome job of giving our allied professionals the language to use to talk about how to integrate psychology into the mm -hmm. care. And this actually maps on to what I was just saying about the parents too. Um, but I think we need to um, teach them that there are metaphors that you can use, that there are ways you can explain the role of cognitive behavioral therapy. One of the worst things providers can do is say, well, I can't fix you. You need to go see a psychologist, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. because the stigma and the implication, it's just, it becomes a really complicated problem. Yep. My dream is that we can start to integrate psychology into pain recovery very early in the mm. process, that it's just a natural progression, that we don't wait until kids are not functioning at school or not sleeping or worse, develop anxiety or depression before we reach out to fully integrate psychology. So if we can just approach it with the mindset that pain is inherently a challenging problem and that having psychology involved in the care early on could really shift that trajectory and, and really be a protective kind of influence in the recovery process. That would be fantastic. And we see this and exactly the same thing in, in GI psychology, yeah. I guess. It's unfortunate they get to the point where they, they sort of come as a bit of a last line. It does. And they've just been suffering for such a long time, which, you know, having pain for such a long time can increase the likelihood of central sensitization right. and other problems as well. So... Yeah, it just needs to be explained at the, at the very first it does, initial it does. consult, really, the first interaction yeah. that they have. Right. Um, and, and it is and, changing. Yeah, I, I think it is. And then, you know, with a with a workshop program like the Comfortability, I mean, the goal is that we'd catch these kids really early too, that they would come and yep. get educated and get some skills around this. And then we maybe buoy them up before they even um, really struggle with that functional disability that is so tricky to undo. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time in, in doing this interview, but also for hosting me and having me here. It's been You're remarkable. I've had such a, I've learned so much and I've had such a great time. In terms of people, uh, I mean, how would people follow what you're doing? Is there, um, are you on social media? Are you, is there, you know, I mean, yes. if they want to learn more about what you're doing, it's just to keep in touch or? Absolutely. So um, the Comfortability has a Facebook page. Mm -hmm. um, we post a lot of information there. We have a newsletter that you can sign up for on the mm -hmm. Comfortability yeah, website. That. Yep. yep, that's open to providers or parents. So anyone that would want to get updates on programming or new research coming out, um, I often write a blog on that newsletter as well. Um, 
that would be a good way. We have a Twitter feed at the comfability. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I personally also have a Twitter feed, which is at Coakley underscore Rachel. Does it have an underscore? I think it does. I think it does. So, um, yeah, I would love for people to get in touch and follow what we're doing. And, um, yeah, that'd be fantastic. Wonderful. So to listeners, you have to go out. This is a have to. um, Get this book, When Your Child Hurts. Uh, um, Every child hurts at some point in their lives. Yeah. Um, And it's just a great way of of knowing how to to manage that really effectively. Thank you again for your time. It's been wonderful. And um, I hope to see this program or yourself in Australia. I hope to be there too. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks, Rachel. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Talking Gut. If you find these talks interesting and helpful, please pass them on to your friends and family. Also, we would love to hear your feedback and suggestions of possible topics or even speakers that you'd like to hear on the podcast. To do this, you can simply contact me on our Twitter, which is at the Gut Center. Here's to a happy, healthy gut. <laughs>